Welcome back, warriors. Tanse Sego Ani Buju, Kwe Ninda Luizi Pampometer, and I am the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, languages, traditions, laws, and nations. And today, I'm really excited to bring you part two of my three-part interview with warrior woman, Dr. Cindy Blackstock. So while while you're having this conversation with the public and with kids and with our First Nation kids and with communities, um, you know, and even our leaders, at the same time, you're also taking advocacy um, further beyond public education, these conversations. And you, uh, you know, you took Canada to the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. Um, and you had alleged that they were being racially discriminatory against First Nation kids in care. Can you tell us a little bit about why you did that? What came out of that tribunal and where we are today? Yeah, so for a lot of years, um, I saw the inequalities. When I was working at the grassroots uh, on a line worker, I worked as a line child protection worker for 13 years. And I saw the fact that, you know, in some of these cases, we had to hold families' feet to the fire. And I'm okay with doing that. Mm-hmm. But sometimes we're holding their feet to the fire for things they couldn't change, which is that they didn't have access to the addiction services they needed. They didn't have access to a proper home for their kid. So uh, honestly, I, I knew two things back then. One is that was completely unfair and probably illegal. And the second thing I was convinced about, Pam, was that I was totally the wrong person to do anything about it. Mm-hmm. I was convinced there was someone out there smarter than I was, more capable than I was. There was somebody out there who my job would be just to stand behind them. So I did what many of us do, right? Which is I kind of decided I'd work with the families that I have the honor of working with and I do what I can. And I did that for a couple of years and then I looked around and I realized that there was, everyone was doing what I was doing, which is thinking there's somebody out there somewhere who's gonna do this, but Mm -hmm. no one was doing it. So, I ended up, there's a great poem my uh, aunt gave me back in the day, and it's by Patrick Overton, and it says, when you step across that place where light leads into darkness, there's something solid to stand on or you'll be taught to fly. Wow. And that poem has just really, that one line has just really kind of guided me in my life, is to realize that the reason that I wasn't doing anything had everything to do with me and my own insecurities. And that really, if you really truly believe in the teachings of the ancestors and you trust it, you've got to step over that line. Because they, when there's a magnetic pull that keeps on pulling you in a direction, that's their message. They're calling you. You have to go over there. And so I stepped over that line. I had no clue what I was doing. And I was uh, still looking around for that other person to appear. But It all evolved where I got to work with a bunch of fantastic First Nations child welfare people back in 2000, along with the Assembly of First Nations. And we created a report with the government that documented the inequality. Back then, First Nations kids were getting 78 cents on the dollar compared to other families in child welfare. And First Nations kids had higher needs, right? So the government sends us a letter saying, great job on the report. Thanks for the recommendations. And then they didn't implement it. But I didn't learn from that. They wanted a more detailed report. So I said, sure, we'll do that. 
you know, this is what many of us do, right? We get involved in all this stuff. And then um, by the time we did that report in 2005, First Nations kids were getting 70 cents on the dollar compared to other kids. Oh my goodness. And at the time we sat at that table, the number of First Nations kids going into care went up over 71%. Ugh. And this is the problem with kind of getting involved in these official procedures when mm -hmm. you already know on the books what needs to be done, which was to give these kids the fair opportunity every other kid gets to go to a proper school, clean, drink clean water, have proper family supports. We knew that before we even wrote the report. So then we had an elder, and I wish I remembered his name, but he's from Northern Ontario, when we created the Caring Society. And he said, never fall in love with the Caring Society and never fall in love with your business card. He said, only fall in love with the children. Aww. Because there may come a day when you have to sacrifice both those things for them. And so for us, that came in 2007. The and Assembly at the Assembly of First Nations passed a resolution and said we had to take Canada to court, that we had to try and get them ordered to stop the discrimination. So AFN and ourselves filed that report, and within 30 days, we lost all of our government funding. So we're still <gasps> the only national organization that doesn't get a penny from government. Uh, but for some people, again, that poem, um, we survived. I mean, I don't know if another national organization has taken 100% cut from the feds and we managed to survive. We were doing our own janitorial. We had to have like, <laughs> half our staff. Uh, we still do our own janitorial. Uh, but it... We, it was, um, we just always believed that it would be okay. And so we filed the case, we didn't have lawyers, but again, we had good people who rallied around. And the moment I knew we won the case wasn't before that when the decision happened, because Canada brought all these technical arguments to say, uh. shouldn't be heard, had nothing to do with kids. And the turning point for the case for me was in 2000, and we filed the case in 2007. For the first two years, we had this program called I Am a Witness, where we just asked reasonable people to come and watch the case. Make up your own mind. I was pretty clear anyone who looks at this is going to understand that this is wrong. And I really believe that discrimination likes darkness. So part of the goal of I Am a Witness was to create light. To show if the government's going to discriminate, it's going to do it in full view, right? Um, but the truth is, people didn't really come. Um, you know, a handful of First Nations folks showed up, but mm. it was uh, often we were just arguing that case in silence. All that changed in 2009 when a group of kids from alternative school walked in. I was about to be cross-examined by Canada. And this young man walks over and he says, we're from alternative school, which means we get into trouble a lot. Oh. And I said, well, that's okay, because so do I. <laughs> and, uh, he said, well, you know, sometimes we deserve it because we're just being stupid, but sometimes we don't deserve it. Sometimes it's a system that deserves to be in trouble. Um, but no one really wants to take them on. But you are, and you want our help, so we're here. So they came back, they stayed all those hearings, and then they came back at the next one wearing I Am A Witness t-shirts that they had designed, and they brought all their friends. So by 2012, there were so many kids coming to the hearings of all ages that we had to book them in in shifts. And these children were of every possible diversity, but all of them could see that it was completely wrong. And all of them were prepared to do something to change it. And when that happened, I knew something very important had happened. Wow. It said our kids will never be alone again.
And so from there, I knew that the kids had already won. It would take until 2016 for the tribunal to order, to make the formal finding that Canada's Child and Family Service Program and failure to implement Jordan's principle was discriminatory. Um, but I knew the kids had won before that because really when the Canadian public starts to realize this racial discrimination is happening and when they don't rationalize it anymore and when they act out against it, that's when it'll end. And that's why raising that new generation is so important. So we got the decision in January of 2016. And I remember that day, like thinking, <laughs> well, change isn't a decision, right? I don't, I've seen this stuff before. Yep. Um, so, and we were sadly right. So there's been like seven non-compliance orders since then. Um, we were in court just yesterday, actually, at the tribunal, arguing on Jordan's principle, because first the Canadian government wants to leave out First Nations children who are recognized by their First Nation as citizens, but no, don't have status. They don't want to give those kids help. So, so on, jo on Jordan's principle, so there was several issues in the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal case, right? It's the chronic and discriminatory underfunding of basic child and family services, and which is a direct cause of the over apprehension of our kids. Yeah. And then there's something called Jordan's principle and not everybody's familiar with that. Yeah. Um, could you just explain it a little bit? What is that? Well, it, Jordan's principle is something very sacred. Jordan's principle was founded by Jordan River Anderson of Norway House Cree Nation. And uh, what happened with Jordan is that he was born in Winnipeg Hospital to his parents, Ernest and Virginia Anderson. Um, and he had to stay there for the first couple of years of his life for medical needs. But, you know, he was a lovely little boy. He couldn't talk or because he's on a ventilator and he couldn't walk. But he loved playing the guitar. And actually, his dad is a big guitarist. You could see this in this beautiful guy playing the guitar. Um, at the age of two, he was to go to a medical foster home in Winnipeg because the family's from Norway House. So the doctor said, you know, let's put him in a family environment, see how he does close to the hospital in case something gets wrong, and then we'll move him up to Norway House as soon as he stabilizes, right? If he was non-Indigenous, he would have gone home. But because mm -hmm. he was First Nations, the government of Manitoba said, well, we're not going to pay because he's a uh, federal responsibility. And then... Indian Affairs and Health Canada started to fight amongst themselves federally, and they fought with the province. So this went on for like close to three years before, as the sister Jerlene says, Jordan died of a broken heart. He slips into a home at age five, and he passes away in the hospital, never having seen a family home. And when that happened, his family said, don't let this happen again. And so Jordan's principle comes from that. And it's to make sure First Nations kids get all public services when they need them. They shouldn't have to wait or get less services because of who they are. And Canada agreed to it in Parliament in 2007. But then they, the bureaucrats got a hold of it mm. and the politicians, and they never implemented it. So we had to take them to court through the tribunal and show how many children were missing out on fundamental things that every other kid would take for granted, just basic things for dignity and health and education. Um, and the tribunal agreed that was discriminatory, and they ordered Canada to implement the proper definition. Uh, Canada didn't do that right away, but thankfully, due to the tribunal's ongoing orders and the strength of Jordan's family and Jordan's spirit, 
As we sit here today, Pam, in the last year, over 210,000 products and services have gone out to First Nations kids in Jordan's name. Um, oh. And we know there's more kids out there in need. So if your uh, listeners want to make a Jordan's principal referral, all you need to do is there needs to be someone in your community says, you know, a teacher or a doctor or nurse or, or occupational therapist, whoever, saying your child needs a service. And you can call 1-855-JP-CHILD. So that's 1-855-JP-CHILD. And you can call that number 24 hours a day and, and be able to request a service in Jordan's name. So that's what Jordan's Principle is all about. There, there must be so many more people in need of Jordan's Principle because I didn't even know that you could call tw 24 hours. I mean, my kids are, are registered too. I would never, like, I don't even know who to call if I'm being denied a service or if there's something that I need, dental work or orthotics or something like that. Yeah, and so like a lot of folks are just starting to learn about Jordan's principles. So there's lots of need out there. And the other thing for people to know is it applies on and off reserve. So if you are a, say, a single parent or uh, and you have a child who uh, needs an educational assessment and you live in downtown Toronto, you're eligible for Jordan's principle. Um, even under the government's criteria right now, if they're registered or eligible to be registered, then they get the service. And we're, we're pressing, of course, so that even when they're recognized by their First Nation, they get the service too. So, yeah, so I didn't know that it was also available to off-reserve. Yeah. I thought it was on-reserve. And then my next question would be, what if my kids weren't registered? What if, what if I was a registered Indian living off reserve or on reserve, but my kids weren't registered? They were, you know, what's known as non-status Indians. Do yeah. they get the benefit of Jordan's principle? Well, I say yes, but we have <laughs> to get the government to say yes too. So right now they'll say if they're eligible to be registered and they reside off reserve, they will get the service. And also we thanks we have to the tribunal if you have a child who's non-status but recognized by their community and they need something urgently, mm -hmm. the government has been ordered to provide that. So those children will get those services because we had uh, children with like urgent medical needs or if they didn't get the help they needed, they could offer, suffer a harm that couldn't be fixed. And Canada was saying no to those kids too. So we brought an interim motion saying, that's not right. You pay for these kids and then figure it out later. So on urgent cases, yes, and that's what we just spent two days in court is to try and get Canada to apply that to all First Nations kids who are recognized by their nations but may not have status. So when, when, will, <laughs> when will we find out if that, that you know, First Nation child definition gets accepted? Well, it's up to the tribunal when it issues its ruling, but I would think within the next couple of months, hopefully we'll be able to get that ruling. And we're going to just at the Caring Society, like we really reject the Indian Act. I just think it's, you know, I'm not going to rely on that thing. Like that is not the way that First Nations traditionally decided their membership. And the, the blood quantum thing is yeah. so, uh, it's so colonial, right? And we need to reject that at every turn. To me, these children, their identity is handed to them from the ancestors and from mm -hmm. their community. And we need to develop our own system so that they respect that. And we need to make sure the government respects that too. Canada should not be in the business of deciding who is or is not a First Nations child. Well, and, you know, 
in addition to there's, I think you said it was seven non-compliance orders. Seven uh, can- counting. Yeah, exactly. Well, Canada's also lost every single court case every time Native women have challenged the gender discrimination in the Indian Act that basically is excluding our kids and our grandkids and in some cases our great-grandkids. And Canada's own internal studies one of the things I love about you, how you use their own internal information against them. Well, they have their own internal study saying that they're the only country left in the entire world that has an Indian Act, first of all, but second, bases it on this like fictional idea of blood quantum. And, you know, there's essentially a legislative extinction date for each First Nation. And when you think about what does that mean to these kids who, if they need care, what if they need braces? What if they need glasses? What if they need a leg brace to be able to participate at school or in sports like everybody else? Yeah, yeah, like it's so colonial. And um, that I, I, I mean, I, I don't know their tribunal, they'll make their own decision, but I'm feeling encouraged. I, out of all the rulings we've had in this case, Pam, which has now been 15, uh, the score is... Uh, 14 for kids and one for Canada. And that one decision Canada won was overturned. So really, <laughs> the kids are, you know, the kids are winning. Kids and- versus Canada. That's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so I really feel, you know, no matter who you have on the judiciary, whether they're, they have a conservative kind of bent or a liberal kind of bent, you know, kids cut through all that kind of crazy politics kind of stuff, too. Uh, everybody knows a child who has been in some need in their lives. And I think that, that this case, in many ways, has brought out the very best of the judiciary because of that. And especially because children have been sitting in the audience watching, right? <laughs> so they haven't been passive players where they just get talked about. It was kind of like at the UN where we brought them there. They're there as their own spokespersons. Mm -hmm. They're there across every diversity, First Nations, Métis, Inuit, non-Indigenous children of every diversity, but they're standing united in a simple message, is that we wanna grow up in a Canada where everybody's rights are respected. And we are not gonna let you get away with doing something different than that. We are here, we see you, and we are gonna do everything we can to make sure that you don't discriminate or leave anybody behind. Well, and by the kids doing it, you accomplish two things. One, the kids' voices are lifted and put forward and they have a say and some kind of control and sovereignty over their own lives and what will happen. But the other thing is what you said about shining a light on the racism because Canada has benefited from legal processes and lawyers and things that pretty much happen behind the scenes. I mean, these things generally aren't televised. So lawyers, Justice Canada lawyers can walk into court and make the most atrocious, you know, horrendous arguments that you would think, who would argue these things? But they get to do it you know, in a sense of almost an an anonymity and people don't realize that they're arguing against treaty rights or they're arguing against culture or they're saying, well, we're not responsible or that's not a child. And I think the more people see what Canada's doing, maybe they'll be a little more hesitant in the future to, to make some of those horrible arguments. And the other thing I think that I've learned from the kids is I'm not sure I actually explained what was happening in a way that everyone could understand. You know, like we have our own language on the First Nations side of things that when we talk about rights and title, we've yeah. but we haven't figured out real ways of kind of explaining that to four-year-olds. 
that really makes sense. And what I found is if I can explain it to a four-year-old, what we're doing here at the Caring Society, which is we want to make sure First Nations kids get a, a safe, a fair opportunity to grow up safely in their families, get a, get a good education, be healthy and proud of who they are. Um, if we can figure out how to say it to a four-year-old, then everybody understands. And I think that's part of what we can do on our side is really frame our message, not that we sacrifice those rights, but that we explain those rights to other people in society in a way that they can understand. And then they'll be able to make more sense of it and be able to support it. And it makes it more difficult for Canada to say, this is something that's so complex that not everybody can understand. Yeah. Everyone can understand why they want to raise their kids in a healthy, happy way that honors their their culture. Everyone gets that. And it also takes away Canada's excuse. Yeah. Well, this is too complex. It's too overwhelming. Yeah. We can only deal with it one little nugget at a time and it's going to take a long time. But if you really simplify it, not just for kids, but for Canadians who aren't into all the tech you know technical language that this is just about fairness these kids want to have you know access to glasses or leg braces or a wheelchair like anybody else and it's dignity of life and i think even for non-first nation people we have kids that suffer from chronic diseases diseases they were born with issues that they have and i can't imagine you'd find too many who would say well you know my child should get this kind of extra care, but nobody else's child could. These are the kind of arguments that come out of, you know, lawyers and positional and politics and policies and not really from the people. Yeah, that's right. And and even for our own folks to be able to understand that, right? Mm. I think if we're able to kind of break it down in a way that everyone can understand and it's accessible to everybody, then we, we, we grab the real power that's already there in community and really engage them in creating change. It sounds like this is a good place to end part two of my three-part interview with warrior woman, Dr. Cindy Blackstock, right here. I learn so much from Cindy every time I listen to her. You can catch the final episode, part three, next Friday at 6 a.m. And I want to thank everyone for tuning into my show. If you like it, please consider supporting my podcast by subscribing, liking, or sharing each episode. I am currently hosted on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Walalia.